Awesome. Well, uh, you may not realize this if, if you're just joining us today, but we are 14 days into 40 days of prayer and fasting as a church. And so we are bringing before God some specific needs of our church and seeking him for direction and calling everybody into that. And we're also seeking him for any kind of individual needs that you may have in your life. And this is all being driven by a passage of scripture that we've been looking at with this series, Voices in the Wilderness. And it's a passage in Matthew 4, where Jesus is led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights of praying and fasting and seeking God. And while he's there, he faces three temptations from the devil. The devil confronts him. And so we're looking at each one of these three. Today, we're looking at the second of the temptations. Last week, we looked at the temptation to satisfy physical desires without God's provision. And so today, we're going to jump right into temptation number two. And what we're learning about these temptations that Jesus faces in the wilderness is they're not just temptations Jesus faces. They're the same temptations that Israel faced during their time of wandering 40 years in the wilderness in the, in the book of Exodus, they're also the same temptations that Adam and Eve faced in the Garden of Eden, and they're also the same temptations that you and I face every single day of our lives. These are basically the big three temptations of all of humanity. And so we see in Jesus uh, what it means to, 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 to find ourselves fulfilling um, those temptations in him, not by our power, but by his power. So this is the second tempta- temptation, Matthew 4, starting in verse 5. Here we go. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, again there, he questions Jesus' identity. That's what he begins with. If you really are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. So there it is. That's the second temptation for Jesus to jump off the highest point of the temple. And then at the last second, angels would somehow, you know, protect him and catch him and not let him strike his foot on a stone. So what, what in the world is that about? I mean, why would that even be a temptation? So in order to get kind of a mental picture in your head, if I could, uh, go ahead. This is a model of what the temple would have looked like in the first century in the holy city of Jerusalem. Um, So what you see here, when he says he took him to the highest point of the temple, the highest point of the temple would have been the top of the portico here of the temple. And the portico stretched about 450 feet above the Kidron Valley below. And basically, the, the temple was the center of Jewish life. It was a very holy place. It was a sacred place, a very religious place. And in fact, it would have been in the holy city, in the most holy place, where the most devout people would have been. And so these people were regularly looking for the Messiah. As the the devout religious Jewish people who were coming to the temple, they would have been imagining and thinking about and looking forward to this Messiah who is coming. And so the idea here is for Jesus to stand on the top of the edge of the portico of the temple until a large crowd of people gathered below him. Just kind of like how if somebody got on the top of a building in downtown Grand Rapids, there would be a bunch of us, right, who would gather and stand there like, what's going to happen? And so at just the right moment when this crowd of people gathers to see him, Jesus would jump off and free fall 45 stories toward the crowd below. And at the last second, angels would catch him and he wouldn't strike his foot on a stone. Now, the reason that's significant is because Satan here is quoting 
uh, Psalm chapter 91. And Psalm 91 was a really significant psalm that the Jewish people would have understood to have been about the Messiah. Psalm 91 was one of the first of uh, the fourth book of Psalms that pointed toward the Messiah and his coming. And so Psalm 91 has this idea that you would have sang it and in the synagogue growing up from the time you were little, you would have sang this song, Psalm 91, and you would have understood it to be about the coming Messiah. And what it says in there is that the Messiah, if he were to fall, the angels would, would catch him and protect him. He wouldn't strike his foot on a stone. And so this temptation is all about Jesus becoming well-known. If Jesus were to say yes to this and jump off the top of the portico and be rescued, everybody would have instantaneously gone, oh, it's the Messiah. Just like the song talks about. See, he, he must be the Messiah. It would have made Jesus instantaneously famous. Now, let's be really, really clear here. Jumping off the top of the temple and being rescued by angels would not have helped anyone. It wouldn't have solved world hunger. It wouldn't have ended poverty. It wouldn't have benefited anybody. What it would have done is made Jesus like a rock star. He would have been bigger than Ed Sheeran. I mean, he would be known everywhere. Everybody would know him if if he jumped off the, the portico of the temple and did this. And so popularity, seeking people's approval, that's what this temptation is all about. Jesus jumping off the portico wouldn't have helped anyone, but it would have immediately made him this rock star. The Messiah has arrived and everyone would know it immediately. Think of all the good things Jesus could have done if everybody just knew he was the Messiah. So if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. This, this temptation is all about drawing an audience. That temptation is to draw an audience and seek that audience's approval. We all have an audience, don't we? Meaning we all have people in our lives that we want to watch us for one reason or another. And they're not all bad reasons. And, and we, when we know those people are watching us, we dance, we perform, we put on the mask and we sing and we do whatever we need to do to win their approval. And here's my theory, actually. I think as we get older, we actually just accumulate more and more people into our audience. The older we get from the time we're little and innocent to the time as we get older and older, we just accumulate more and more people that sit in that audience for us. Bosses, uh, kids, grandchildren, uh, clients, followers on Facebook or Instagram, whatever it is, we just keep accumulating people and we keep playing for the audience. Now, uh, maybe you're the type of person you're sitting here saying, well, I don't have an audience. I don't care about people's approval. I'm an engineer. All I care about is if the math is correct on things. I, I don't care about people think of me. If that's you, I just want to tell you, it, it may take some different form in your life, but everybody wrestles with this one. Everybody has an audience in their life, and everybody has some way that they seek the approval of other people, no matter how much on the outside maybe they don't look like they do. And a clue to understanding what, who is in my audience is to ask the question, what do you constantly check? If you're trying to figure out, well, who is in my audience? What, what, what does that look like for me? A great clue to understanding that is, what do I constantly check? If you can identify that, you can understand 
who you're seeking to win approval of. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, those of you who have an iPhone, uh, if you've done the new iOS 12 update, you'll notice that it, it, with, the, uh, with the new update, um, it has uh, this feature called screen time. Anybody else notice this? And so suddenly, uh, what it does, if you don't have an iPhone and you haven't updated to iOS 12, is it tells you at the end of your week, here's how much time you spent, even during the day, it tells you here's how much time you spent on the screen. And it breaks it down, here's how much time you spent on social networking, and here's how much time you spent on other things. And how many of you have just been shocked by that as you've seen that? Anybody else besides me? Because here's the thing, I, I lead a very busy life. I feel like I'm busy all the time. In fact, I'm always saying, like, man, I'm so busy, I just don't have enough time to do all the things I need to do. And then I'll look at my phone and it's like, but apparently I had two hours yesterday to look at Facebook. I don't know how that happened because I feel like I just have no time at all. And yet somehow, what, what do you constantly check? How, how many followers do I have? Oh, does, how many likes did I get? How many people commented on that last post? Pay attention to those things. That, that's, that's a clue to who is sitting in your audience. Seek, who are you seeking approval from? Maybe it's not the phone, maybe it's not social networking or any of that. Maybe for you, the thing that you constantly check is this. And every day you stand on one. And whatever the number says right here affects how you see the rest of your day and, and your own sense of self-worth. And if the number's good, you feel great about yourself. And if the number's not so good, it affects everything else for the rest of the day. What about the young woman who starves herself and exercises to the point of obsession? Way beyond, I mean, there's, it's one thing to be physically fit, and that's a good thing, but who, it becomes this obsession because she's trying to look the right way for the right group of people because the audience has become maybe some followers, maybe a group of people, and, and if, if the scale says the right number, then she's doing well in life, and if it doesn't, that she's not. What do you constantly check? Usually it's a good clue to who you're seeking approval from and who sits in your audience. Maybe that's not, maybe it's not the scale for you, maybe it's not, you know, the screen. Uh, maybe for you, this is it. And so maybe you know right this exact moment, you can tell me exactly what you have in your bank account because you checked it already today. To the dollar, you know exactly how much you've got in the bank account, and you know how much you've got in your investments and your portfolio. You know how much your total assets are worth. And it's, the problem with it is that this thing has become a symbol for you of your own sense of self-worth. And if I have enough of it, then I feel adequate. And so everything in life becomes about, you know, showing that I'm doing well in this area. So the house that I live in, the cars that I drive, the clothes that I, that I wear, it's all about showing the world that I am winning when it comes to this area of life. What do you check all the time? Whatever you check most often is probably a good indicator of what it is in your heart that you're, that you're identifying yourself with to seek approval from a group of people with. And we all do it. For me, if I, if I were to be totally honest with you, uh, the audience for me oftentimes becomes the church. In a weird way, I'm standing in front of my audience right now. And uh, as a pastor, 
Um, sometimes the church becomes the audience that if I'm not careful, I can play to. You know, one of the, the nice things about getting older is that as you get older, you can be honest about things you couldn't be honest about when you were younger. <laughs> and so uh, I can admit this now. I couldn't admit this years ago. But when my kids were really young and I was first uh, the pastor of Frontline, uh, I chose to work endless hours here at Frontline. I'm going to say that again because I said it very, very intentionally. I chose to work an endless amount of hours here at Frontline. And there were reasons for that and reasons that I would have given you at that time and that I gave my wife and I gave everybody. It was that we had much less staff at the time and so the needs of the church were, were much more on me. I mean, I was functioning in a role where I was doing a lot more and covering a lot more bases than I am right now and the church was growing. There were all these issues and so there was all this stuff I was dealing with and so I needed to be here and that's what Jesus would want is for me to not neglect the church but to be here at the church and so that's what I did. I just put in hours and hours and hours. But here's the truth that I could admit to now. What was really underneath that was when my kids were very young, we have four boys, I didn't really know how to connect with them. In fact, to be honest with you, two-year-olds still scare me. That's an awesome thing to admit on Child Dedication Sunday, isn't it? <laughs> From your pastor. They do. I'd, it's not that I don't like. I like two-year-olds on a case-by-case -case basis. I, I really do. It's just I don't know what to do with a two-year-old. I don't know how to connect with a two-year-old. I just don't. And so the, what was actually underneath that for me when my boys were very young is there was this deep fear inside of me. What if I don't have what it takes to be a father to them? What if I don't what if I don't measure up here in this area? And that was a very real fear for me, that somehow I was going to fail as a dad. And so, I just went to this area of life where I felt like I could win. And I put up a religious front. And here's the thing, religion is actually a really great thing if you're trying to be a fraud. It's awesome. Because what you can do is you just keep putting up this religious front and you just get enough people to believe something about you, it must be true. And so I did a parenting series during the, those years at the same time while I was neglecting my kids at home. Uh, I did a marriage series during one year where I was slowly walking down the path of an emotional affair, walking away from my wife. And the thought in my head was, if I can just convince enough of you that I, that I am something, that something is true about myself, well, then it must be true. If enough of you believe in the audience that it's true, then it must be. And I'm really, I'm grateful to be able to say, I'm in this incredible place of grace in my life. I believe we are in the best years of our marriage, Carrie and I, that we've ever experienced. And I have a great relationship with all four of my boys right now, by the grace of God. But the truth is, I wish I could have those years back. There are some things I would do differently. There's some things I would take a little more slowly. That's the way this temptation works. For us here at Frontline, the temptation to play to the audience uh, comes in this subtle way. If you've been with us the last couple weeks, you know the needs that are driving us uh, right now as a church is that we need um, a new roof and a new sound system. Uh, and so part of what we felt was like to call the church together for a season of prayer and fasting to seek God's direction on how does he want us to go about uh, looking at that. Now to be clear, the roof is still intact and as you can tell, the sound system is still working. 
But we're exploring, we're saying, God, uh, basically what we said is, think of the roof and the sound system in this place as like a 1986 Honda Civic with 275,000 miles on it, okay? That's basically what we're dealing with here. Um, and, and here's what, what I've been thinking about is, as we, it relates to this temptation and those needs. Um, the reason why it matters that we have a roof on a facility like this and that we have a sound system is because you can use a facility with a roof and a sound system to reach people. But, but the issue, the temptation underlying it is you can also use a big facility with a roof and a sound system to impress people. And that's where the, the motive becomes important and the shift in our hearts matters. Because, you know, the question is, are we using a, a roof and a facility like this and a sound system to draw people to a building? Or are we using the roof and a sound system on a facility like this to draw people to Jesus? Because if all we're doing is, is drawing people to a building to impress people, we lose. But if we are actually care about those things in, in effect so that we can draw people to Jesus, that matters because Jesus is the only thing that can set the captives free. It's only the power of Jesus that can save people, that can forgive people, that can heal people, that can redeem people. It's only his power that can do that. So this temptation comes in in these subtle ways. Are you playing to an audience to impress people? Or are you really seeking out God and drawing people to the person of Jesus? It can easily drift for me. So um, with that in mind, let's take a look at Jesus' response together, okay? This is how Jesus responds to the devil's temptation. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. Now, what's happening here is the devil and Jesus are sort of getting into this like scripture-quoting jujitsu match, okay? So on one hand, uh, Satan approaches Jesus and he quotes Psalm 91, which is this psalm that would have been understood to be about the Messiah and about, you know, and basically he's trying to get Jesus to exploit this promise about the Messiah to serve his own purposes in this. And so Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's what he quotes in response. And Deuteronomy 6 says uh, that, that you, sh you should not put the Lord your God to the test. But Deuteronomy 6, the whole chapter actually that Jesus is quoting, it was a very central passage of Scripture for the Jewish people at that time. Deuteronomy 6 contains a prayer called the Shema. And the Shema is the oldest fixed daily prayer in Judaism. In fact, to this day, the Shema is what is said at the closing liturgy of Yom Kippur, the holiest day in, in Judaism. And so this prayer, the Shema, would have been something that people uttered over and over and over again in their lives. It would have been a grounding, centralizing prayer. And actually, uh, the Shema is the, the passage of Scripture that we found at our children's ministry, the block on, which is, so it feels kind of fitting today to be reading that passage of Scripture for Child Dedication Sunday. Um, but this is what it says, Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4, says, Listen, O Israel. Some translations say, Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone, or the Lord is one. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly. You must commit yourselves how? Wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. 
Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road, when you are going to bed and when you are getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then from that passage, a few verses later, it says, and do not put the Lord your God to the test. What Jesus is referencing here and the way he's responding to Satan, for Jesus, he's saying, there is only one person sitting in my audience. There there is an audience of one, Jesus says, that I'm living for. And, And it's God. And what do you do with God? God is not there for any other reason than for you to love him wholeheartedly. Your job, if God is in your audience, it's an audience of one, and, and Jesus is saying, I am here to love the Lord with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and strength, and I'm not here to use him and to try to manipulate his promises in a way to get him to work for me and give me what I need in my life or, or what would make me more popular with people. God is there for me to love. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write this down. The the whole point here is you can't love God if you are trying to use him. You can't possibly love God wholeheartedly if you are simultaneously trying to use him, which is what Satan is inviting Jesus to do with Psalm 91. Just see if you can exploit one one of his promises so that you can get approval of people. You can't love God wholeheartedly if you're simultaneously trying to use him. And in the the same way, you can't serve people if you are simultaneously trying to impress them. Now, why does this matter? It matters because some of you right now are trying to figure out your purpose for your life. Maybe you're in a stage of life where you're just asking, what on earth am I here for? Or maybe it's, what on earth am I still here for? What do you want me to do with my life, God? What would be the meaningful, fulfilling thing for me to do with my life? And here's what I would say. Uh, finding your purpose in life that God has put you on this earth for is always connected to loving God first and serving people. It always begins there. And your most meaningfully, most meaningful, uh, your best contribution to this world will always be connected to the way that you love God wholeheartedly and the way that you serve people. And you can't love God if you're trying to use him. And you can't serve people that you are trying to impress somehow. You can't. The motives get mixed up and it just, it doesn't work. And so what Jesus is doing here in this moment is, is he's connecting back to that idea. And what Satan is doing here is brilliant, isn't it? He knows, the devil knows if he can get Jesus just to start living for the approval of people, then he can drag Jesus off his purpose. The purpose that God put him here on earth to go toward the cross and toward the resurrection. And the reason is because that's what happens to all of us. If the devil can just sort of get us to start living for for the approval of people, he can draw us off the purposes that God has for our lives. And so our relationship with God just becomes trying to to use him in some way so that we can impress more and more people rather than loving him and serving others. And it's subtle. And it takes root in subtle ways. And then it just keeps going. It's like a path that once you get on it, it's just a little bit off. And the farther you go in life, the more off you get. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to fall for that. What's amazing is if you trace the path of Jesus' ministry from then on in the Gospels, Jesus, this isn't the last time that Jesus faces this temptation. It isn't the last time that he faces the temptation to seek the approval of people. And what you see is again and again and again, 
Jesus refuses to go after the approval of people. He seeks after loving God, the audience of one, and serving people with his life mission. I'll give you a few examples of this. You see this with the, with the religious authorities in Matthew chapter 23. It would have been so tempting for Jesus to seek the approval of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the scribes. These were the religious power brokers of Jesus' day. And for them to have approved of Jesus and to, they could have opened so many doors for him, even just personally. Uh, they, if, if they would have recognized him and recognized what he was doing, man, it could have, it could have opened so many doors. There could have been so many th- good things to come from that. But Jesus recognized the corruption that was going on with them. And so in Matthew 23, 3, he says to his followers, he says, look, the, the religious authorities, they may sit in the seat of Moses. You may have to listen to them, but don't you be like them. Don't be like them. And he refuses to play to that audience. He refuses to seek their approval. You see this with politics in Matthew chapter 22. This is a good one for us uh, to remember. In Matthew 22, it's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. You have these two groups of people that approach Jesus. You have these Jewish, this group of Jewish nationalists who hated King Herod. They absolutely hated him. And they came together with their political enemies, the Herodians, who loved King Herod and thought all the Jewish people should be supporting King Herod. I mean, think of these two people as complete opposite ends of the spectrum politically. Like, think Democrats and Republicans, okay? And imagine them coming together to do something. It's amazing, isn't it? So they, they came together to Jesus with a question. And the question they ask him is, is it right, Jesus, do you think, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And the question was intended to be a trap. Because if Jesus answers, well, yeah, it's okay, or, or if he says, no, absolutely not, but whatever he answers, he is going to win the approval of one side of the political spectrum, and, and the same, simultaneously, he's going to be hated by the other side of the political spectrum. So it's a trap to get him to choose a side politically. And Jesus answers so brilliantly by saying, well, render unto Caesar what's Caesar and God's, what is God's. And they go away, both of them disappointed, both groups disappointed, because he just refuses to take a political side. Go study that sometime for yourself. It's brilliant, his response, and what that would have meant in that moment for those people. He just refuses to take a side politically, because his gospel was not a political party gospel. It was about all people, and it was about a kingdom that didn't belong to this world. It was a kingdom from another place. And he was devoted to that first and foremost. And that's, that's what he was about. And you're sitting there saying, some of you right now, well, well, but Jesus' message had political ramifications. Of course it did. Jesus' message had ramifications for every area of life. But he refused to take a side and to seek the approval of one political group or another. We'd, be good, we'd do well to remember that. Jesus didn't fit into any political category because his allegiance was to, was to God first. And then you see it in reference to the crowds In John 2, it says that crowds of people were coming to Jesus and they were putting their trust in Jesus, which is the point why he's here, right? But then in John 2, 24, it says that as the crowds were doing this, it said Jesus refused to put his trust in them because he knew what was in men's hearts. And he remained devoted to God alone. His mission was to love God and to serve people, not use God in an attempt to try to impress people. And he stayed true to that all the way to the cross. So for Frontline, as we think about what do we do with this temptation? Uh, what do we, how do we respond? 
the fasting challenge for this week is there. Uh, hopefully you got one of these when you walked in the door, one of these um, fasting uh, prayer and fasting guides. And so for this week, we're done asking you to fast from lunches. How many of you, man, this was brutal this past week, fasting from lunches, man, it was, it was painful. Um, and so we thought for the week of Thanksgiving, we won't give you a food fast. That probably would just be mean. And so um, instead, what we're asking you to do this week is we're asking you to fast from social media. We're asking you to fast from Facebook. Yeah, wow, I heard that. Okay, maybe let's just give you a moment to absorb that. <laughs> uh, we're, we're asking you to actually uh, fast from social media. This morning, I literally uh, checked Facebook one last time, and then I, uh, I deleted the apps, all my social media apps, off my phone. I'd encourage you to do that too. And just take a week uh, with no social media because that becomes such an audience for us that we're projecting our, Im- our digital image out to. And what we're asking you to do with uh, whatever iOS, iOS 12 says that you have, you know, two hours, that two hours a day, what are you going to do with that time? We're asking you to spend some time in uh, listening prayer. And so um, specifically on these prayer guides, there's some guidance on how to actually do that. And so a lot of times we think of prayer as we're talking, we are projecting, and, and, and we're asking God for things. But a listening prayer is where we silence all those voices and we just listen to God. And so um, there's some guidance of how to do that. And I challenge you this week, while you're fasting from social media, to take this time and actually practice this idea of listening prayer. For some of you, that's going to be a new thing. You've never tried to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit before in your life. And I believe this week, God is going to speak to some of you. I believe he'll speak to all of you if, you, if you're willing to do it. Um, and here's what we'd ask. Uh, we, we would love for you to share your stories. Whenever you do get back online, we'd love for you to share your stories with us uh, of what God speaks to you during this week. Because he goes, I just believe as we do this and as we, we seek God together, uh, that he is going to speak and he's going to say some things to some of you that you desperately need to hear, that you need to hear the Father say to you. And so share that with us. Let us know about that. And that's the challenge. And the thing I just want to, again, just, uh, just say, but God, I feel like God has just been pressing on my heart, even just these last couple weeks as we've done this fast, is that, you know, while our need is for a roof and for a sound system, uh, really what God is doing in our hearts, what he's doing in our lives during the season is really what's most important. Because uh, if, if we get... However God wants to provide a new roof and a sound system, if those things happen, but we don't get a nude or renewed passion to reach our community, then it's pointless. All this is worthless. If we don't have a renewed passion to use what God's given us, whether it be through the storehouse or through the ministry side here of the church, the children's ministry, everything that happens, if we don't get a renewed passion to use all those things to draw people to the person of Jesus Christ, it matters none what we're doing. And who cares if we get a new roof or a new sound system? So with that in mind, I I hope as you're praying and you're fasting, you're not just thinking about your own individual life, but you're praying and you're fasting and seeking God for our church on behalf of that. Um, So the band's going to come out and we're going to close. And um, as as the band's coming to sing one last song, I'll I'll share this. Um, All four of my boys, I remember each one of their child dedications. Um, We actually had all four of our boys dedicated here at Frontline. And while I remember all four of them, there is one of, their, one of those child dedications stands out to me. It's kind of emblazoned in my memory, and it's our third son, Aaron. 
I remember his child dedication well. Uh, we had a miscarriage uh, before Aaron. And so Aaron was the child that we prayed to God for and we pleaded with him for and we fasted and we asked God, God, would you please allow us to have one more child? And so I remember when Aaron was born, I remember his child dedication because it was a powerful moment where we knew God had provided for us. And so I remember on that day, I remember saying all the things that you say, God, today we surrender Aaron to you. And uh, God, we dedicate Aaron to you now in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is yours. His life is yours. You do what you want with him. And it sounded really good. Problem was, we didn't mean it. We didn't mean a word of it until he was two years old and we sat in a doctor's office and it was the first time that we had a physician use the word autism to describe what we were encountering with Aaron. And everything changed on that day. And we, we left those two parents sitting in that doctor's office. We've never seen those two parents ever again. I used to miss them. I don't miss them anymore. And the reason I don't miss them anymore is because what God has done with Aaron's life so far exceeds anything that I could have imagined for his life. The story that God is telling through his life right now is a far better story than the one I was making up in my head for him. We just celebrated Aaron's 13th birthday this past week. He's a teenager, which is terrifying. And um, I am finding that even at 13 years old, I'm still having to dedicate him to the Lord. And that's how it is with this one. That's how it is with this temptation. It's not just a one-time thing. If you decide to really do this, if you really decide to love God instead of trying to use him, and you decide to actually try to serve people instead of trying to impress them, you are going to hit moments in your journey where you're going to say to yourself, I didn't mean it. I take it back. I know I said that. I don't really mean it. God, would you help me just impress these people? Would you help me win the approval? Can't you just make this happen or that happen in my life? You're going to have those moments. So if I could end with just this encouragement, do this anyway. Because what God wants to do in your life and what he will do in your life if you live this one out is far better than whatever it is that you're imagining for your life. The purposes that he has for you, the story he wants to tell through your life, no matter how difficult it may be, is going to be a far better story than the one that you're imagining. So I'd love to do this. If we could, would you stand and uh, offer a prayer uh, as before we sing one last song? I want to challenge you this week to fast from social media and spend some time listening to God and let him speak to you. As his son, as his daughter, let him remind you who you are. So God, right now, we just come before you as your children. And uh, we recognize, God, um, that none of us has a place in your kingdom because of our merit, what we've done, what we've earned, what we've accomplished for ourselves. Because of all those things that we check constantly, all those people that we think approve of us, it all piles up into one big pile of nothing. And our identity and our hope and our 
the promise of salvation is found in you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for coming to this earth. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins, for overcoming these temptations so that in you we can have a new life and we can overcome them too. We ask this week, God, would you speak to us in the places of our lives where we desperately need it the most. Speak to us in areas of our lives where we're trying to seek the approval of people and remind us again, God, that we have only an audience of one. And that audience of one says to us, this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love, with them I am well pleased. There's nothing to gain, nothing to lose, nothing to prove. We're your children. And would you write the story with our lives, and would you write the story with our church, God, that you want to write? To that end, we just thank you. It's in Jesus' name, everybody said.